out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the musician David Palmer, who sometimes goes by the name of Yorkie and has been part of the Liverpool rock scene and general music scene all his life, has worked with such people as Space, Egypt for now, Moon Goose, and the Dance Party and currently The Balcony. So this is the interview, which is going to be very interesting. So take notes, I will test you at the end. So after several minutes of casual but interesting chat, we got down to that exciting subject of the early musical years. David, or Yorkie, take it away. Uh, to be honest, David, it was exactly the same as yours. I, uh, even more than a punk kid, I'm a glam kid. Yes, it's the sweet. Uh, I mean, the sweet. Uh, it was, it was something that I was aware of, and that with Coco, and Wigwam Bam, and things like that. But when you got to, to classics like Blockbuster and Teenage Rampage and all that, they're just a they're a forgotten band for me, you know. Yes, uh, absolutely. And all, the stuff, all the glam stuff was just. The soundtrack of my youth, you know. Yeah. And then it grew in somewhat by prog rock, um, which I could never really get into in that, you know. Um, like, you know, sort of symphonies and two tracks spread over, uh, sorry, one track spread over two sides of an album. So I was really, really made up when punk appeared. Because it was just like glam again, you know. It was back to the two or three minute pop song, you know. Yes. And did you come from a musical household at all? Were your parents at all musical? Did they? Uh, Mum used to sing years ago, uh, and I think she had like a couple of uh, like acetate records pressed. Um, but other than that, no, no. Yeah. Was, did you? I was going to say, did did you have any kind of older brothers or sisters that kind of gave you a bit of a musical, you no, know? No, it was just something I found myself. I mean, I always just love books and music. Right. Fantastic. Because to be honest, I, I come from the wonderful world that is the countryside in East Anglia. So punk never really happened. And also I was a bit too young for punk. So, um, you know, it was status quo. It was kind of slightly heavy metal. And also I had an older brother who was seven years older, who was into the world of prog rock. So I got into Yes and Genesis and Wishbone Ash, all those. But he also had Deep Purple and Black Sabbath albums as well. So I got a bit into heavy metal during that period. It was the 80s and discovering John Peel and the NME that changed things for you. It happened to everyone. It was like, you know, things like, um, you know, like, like Well Out the Bunny Man. Uh, I was talking to him a while ago um, at a, a Peter Hook and the Light gig. And and I don't know if you've seen Peter Hook and the Light. They do Joy Division and that, you know. And, and it sounds a bit naff and cabaret, but it's actually brilliant. But oh. Will was always, um, he, he just said, like, you know, I always preferred Joy Division to us, me and the Bunny Men, because they were a bit more Black Sabbath than us. So, you know, it goes back, like, a lot of punks loved a lot of, like, uh, Black Sabbath and Deep Purple and things like that, you know, and especially things like Dr. Feelgood and uh, Motorhead. Yes, we love Motorhead so much. But actually, well, the one... Were adopted punks, weren't they? 
They were. I mean, Lemmy was just amazing. But actually, the one band that a lot of people had a massive moment with was Hawkwind. Seeing Hawkwind in the 70s was was kind of an experience for many reasons, not only sort of naked nudity, but also the light show and the, the amazing experience. So Hawkwind has often been, you know, massively influential. The synthesizer as well. Yes. Quite new then, you know, and when you when you listen to Silver Machine, just that traveling synth going through it is amazing, you know. It's still quite thrilling to hear, you know. It's a special song. It's a very special song. But but did you when did you start thinking, you know, because I've always just been a music, you know, punter and fan, but did when did you think actually I'm gonna try and sort of play an instrument and learn to sort of, you know, master the art of of music? Um, well, originally, when I first saw Roxy Music, uh, that that was game changing. That 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 basically changed my life. I'd never seen or heard anything since, you know, quite like Virginia playing, because you know, for a start, it's got no chorus, it, it, and then it just ends abruptly, you know. So I actually thought I saw in my mum's catalogue that you could buy an electric guitar, and I thought you just plugged it into a socket, you know, a wall socket. So thankfully, I never got one at that time, you know, otherwise I wouldn't be here. Um, but it was only years later <clears throat> with punk and the ethos that, you know, it was easy, it was cheap, go and do it. And here's one chord, here's two chords, go and form a band. And that, that that got you sort of excited and thinking that it was possible, you know. And then I fell into a group of friends who um, were starting bands and and. One of them, one of them became uh, the teardrop explodes with Julian Cope, and I became friends with Julian, who was living down our vale. And then a little bit later, they they moved into our cellar to rehearse, and then they said they've got some friends who would like to rehearse there as well. And because they didn't have a drummer, they could rehearse of an evening. So that was Echo and the Bunnymen. So the two bands rehearsing in my cellar meant that I had a whole like, you know, smorgasbord of equipment to to play with. So I just started getting friends around and we started messing around on all these instruments with a view to hopefully getting good enough to form a band, you know. That's quite cool. That's just accidental almost, you know. Yes, God, that is very accidental. That's quite amazing. So was Roxy Music one of your first gigs you ever went to? No, the first gig I ever went to was uh, Lou Reed at the Empire uh, when I was 11, 10 or 11. My God, that you 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 slightly pitched that quite high, didn't you? Uh, well, I was a good start, I think, yeah. And then after that, I think the second gig was Family. These were all because my brother had tickets for them and his friends had let him down. Right. So going along to them. Uh, loved Lou Reed, loved family, went to see Yes, and they were terrible. They bored the pants off, off me. I still don't like Yes. I apologise. No, God, um, don't apologise. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I went to see Roxy Music at the Floral Hall in Southport. Um, they they were doing one gig in this country uh, as a warm-up to go into Europe for the Stranded Tour. So I saw that gig and SAG School for it. I met all of them apart from Ferry. Right, blimey, that's that's very cool, and and 
was John Porter in the band at that stage or had he left? Because I know he went in. There was a guy called John Porter who was a bit in Roxy Music. But then he... John was in the band, yeah. I think it was John on bass. Yeah, I know he didn't kind of want to be in Roxy Music and wanted to be more of a producer. And then he did all these kind of work in the 80s, sort of with people like, started with the Smiths and then various other people. His CV is extraordinary. He ended up working with uh, some friends of mine called The Room. Oh, yes. He ended up producing um, part of an LP called In Evil Hour. uh, And the other part of it was um, Tom Verlaine out of television. Right. That is quite cool, isn't it? So did you, because yeah. having spoke to a lot of people from Liverpool, there's um, there's Eric's. When did you discover Eric's or when did when did you all have your first Eric's moment? Um, well, the, at first I used to go to the Mountford Hall to see bands, which is like quite a big sort of student venue. And then uh, when I first met Julian, um, I know that they frequented uh, Matthew Street which is where Eric's was and Probe was. Um, but I was too young to get into Eric's because uh, at this time I was only 15. Um, but used to hang around a place called uh, the Armadillo Tea Rooms um, with, with all my new friends and that. And, and you'd get bands coming in who were playing Eric's that night. So, you know, you'd chat to like Hugo Burnham out of the Gang of Four, or you might get like, you know, members of... Uh, uh, Prague Vec or the Au Pairs or whatever, you know, they'd always go to the Armadillo. And then Eric started doing matinees uh, for young people. So I think I went to every single one of them. And then I started getting, like, friendly with Roger, who owned Eric's. And he would let some of my older friends sign me in on the young person's guest book so I could go to evening performances then. And then there was one particular gig I was really looking forward to, which was uh, the second appearance of Perubu, a massive fan of Perubu from Cleveland. Um, And uh, there was no one around to sign me in. And I'm standing there waiting and I'm thinking, I'm going to miss this, you know. And then the the fire exit door opened and it was Roger Eagle. And he said, I'll just go tell them on the door that it's okay for you to come in now for nothing. So from then on, I basically lived in Eric's, you know. That is amazing. It, was my, it didn't even matter who was on. Yes. I used to just, you know, so, you know, Roger was a big reggae fan and had immaculate taste in reggae. So you go down there and such amazing reggae nights. And then he'd even have like uh, Zydeco, Rocket Dopsy and his Cajun Twisters and things like that. So I just loved that, you know, it felt like home. There was no violence there at all um and the variety of stuff that roger put on was endlessly fascinating you know yes i i kind of see those i mean actually it's not just eric's but any any kind of alternative venue in the uk from that kind of late 70s to 80s is just like it is kind of mind-boggling really isn't it you just kind of see not just one band but two three bands a night and it's like god they're so good and it's only 290 or 250 to get in so um yes no, we no, were... no. even then david it was a uh, i've still got some flies and that and sometimes it's like uh 50p for members or a pound for guests for things like uh the police and you too, and things like that. You know, the amount of bands I saw there is, is as you say, quite mind-boggling. You know, 
It is mind-boggling. So when did you see Death School for the first time? Because they seem to be one of those cult bands that everyone liked, alongside the Yachts as well. Or I, yacht. I actually wasn't a huge Death School fan, uh, which, you know, much to my dismay, because to me at that time, they were like, um, I don't know, crap Roxy music, you know, like a scout <laughs> rock music. Um, but, you know, in hindsight, it's you cannot underestimate how important deaf school were to the Liverpool scene, you know? And I've actually, I've met Clive Langer a few times and that, and I confessed to him early on what I've just said to you, that I was never a huge fan, and he sort of forgave me, begrudgingly, yes. you know? But there was another but, um, band. But, uh, 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 one of my favourite bands from that, was uh, Big in Japan. Oh, God, And without yes. deaf school, you know Big in Japan, you know? Because it was because they were going away on tour, they let Bill Drummond uh, and his friends use their rehearsal studio and their equipment, and insisted by the time they got back from America that they had to have a band, you know, and that's how Big in Japan were born. Right. So then you met the gang, didn't you, Jane Casey? Who I always remember an interview where she said about that group who was doing uh, Big in Japan, saying that they were just kind of like wearing their neurosis on stage because they were all sort of, you know, that artistic but slightly troubled bunch of kids who sort of, um, yes, were, were there performing. Was that was that kind of a true, was that kind of a, a, a true insight into Big in Japan and the creative kind of muse of the band? Well, I mean, if, if Jane says that, then it must be true in that. But to me, um, I just fell in love with them because there was, there was something, there was just an energy and amateurishness about them uh, that I found captivating. And I, I was always a big, even at an early age, I was a big Warhol fan and Burroughs fan. And that's what their songs were about. They referenced like, uh, you know, uh, The Wild Boys by William Burroughs and a lot of, uh, like the first EP was called From White to Z and Never Again in answer to Warhol's From A to B and Back Again book, you yes. know. Um, so for me, they became my band, you know, and and I don't know. She was beautiful, Jane. You know, she especially to like you know a teenage boy. She was just stunning and so otherworldly. She had like a shaved head, black lipstick, black eyeliners, the most beautiful breasts, and uh, in a little halter neck top. She was an absolute dream. And then you'd have like this manic, massive guitar player, Big Bill Drummond. Holly on bass, Budgie on drums, uh, Ian Brody on guitar, and I coined the term, which is now widely used, that they were a supergroup in reverse, you know, because, of course, they all individually went on to change British music forever, you know, yes. with the Lightning Speeds, with Frankie Goes to Hollywood, with Susie and the Banshees, with the KLF. You know, it, it was just amazing. It was quite amazing, wasn't it? I know there was the Cherry Red Records put out uh, quite a good, really good compilation, didn't they, a few years ago with five CD box set of Liverpool during that kind yeah, of period got, into I've the... Got, I think I've got five tracks on there. Four <laughs> That's very good. That's very good, actually. Yeah, so look, so then 79, Thatcher gets in, then we have the Falkland crisis war, then we have the miners' strike, then we have... 
you know, Greenham Common, we all thought we were going to die in a nuclear explosion war. And and then sort of a few years later, there was things like Red Wedge. What was what was the kind of early 80s like for you? Because then you'd hit that kind of golden, the golden I've left school phase. Did you leave school at 16 or did you continue on for a few more years? No, no, I left as early as possible. In fact, I never really went to school till my last year. I got a job in Virgin Records when it was in St. John's Precinct in Liverpool. Um, I just didn't get on with school at all, you know. Yes. Uh, I didn't get on with the the teaching methods, basically, because when I went to, I went to a place called the Liverpool Collegiate, and when I went, it was a, a grammar school. And then a the year after, it changed to a comprehensive. But some of the teachers resented that and still insisted on wearing cap and gowns and, and enforcing the previous sorts of regimes, way of teaching. So... I always had a bit of difficulty with the teachers, you know. So I, I left school as early as possible. Uh, I worked for my dad. He had a, a market stall, so I worked on that, which meant that I could <coughs> earn enough to go to Eric's every night, you know. Um, and and at the, the period you're talking about, what you what you hinted at there about the the threat of nuclear annihilation and that the Cold War thing was really like hanging over everyone's head it was it was quite a scary time you know because you heard rumors that they they had call-up papers ready for people on the dole and that and then you had like you know the the anti-nazi league and things rightfully standing up against racism and rock against racism was put in place um so it was quite an active period uh right across the board uh in the early 80s late 70s you know Yes, absolutely. It was very strange. And there was like, I think in our village shop, we even had a siren to say, which would go off if there was a, you know, the nuclear war. Because I remember looking down and going, what's that? And the woman said, oh, that's the siren. It's like, oh, gee. That, that's <laughs> quite horrifying when you think of it, you know. It's a little bit kind of like, God, I thought that was just in films. I didn't realise we actually got one in the village. It was like, Well, I'm, I'm just finishing reading a book on, uh, do you know, an author called Nigel Neal? He wrote uh, a lot of TV things, famous TV things like uh, the Quatermass films and and a lot of like really really good TV work, you know. But his his main thing was things extraordinary or out of the ordinary appearing in the ordinary setting. Right. So Shot, and then you see something and you say, "What's that?" And suddenly it's a fucking siren to alert people to a nuclear war. That's quite scary, I think, you know. Yes, I know. There was a put in place. It's it's very strange and explain. So when did you form your first band? Because you said um you were in you was your first band balcony or was there was no, it no. Uh, that, that was me technically fourth band. Uh, my first band was uh when I was about late sixteen and it was <laughs> it was given the name Ho Ho Bacteria by Julian Cope, who'd found that scrawled on a big black stain. And the, the teardrops had just started touring. And he found a big black stain on a toilet wall and someone had written in the middle, Ho Ho Bacteria. And for some reason, he thought that'd be a good name for my band. And for some other reason, I thought it was as well. So that was the name of the first band, which mutated properly when we became serious into the dance party. Oh right, so that's the band, and and that's on the Revolutionary Spirit box set, and then the band after that, that that was formed with uh, Mick Head, 
out of uh, the Pale Fountains and Shaq. We yeah. started bands together. Um, and then the guitarist left, so we formed a new band called Egypt for Now, which are also on that box set. Um, and then me and Mick parted company. He formed the Pale Fountains and I formed the Balcony. Right, blimey, O'Reilly. And how were you, I mean, how was the kind of the, the general 80s kind of vibe in Liverpool at that stage? Were you sort of, were you able to sort of make this a sort of a full-time kind of hustle or were you having to do other things as well? Because I know talking to a lot of people from the 80s in indie bands, especially in that early period, there was like the Job Seekers Allowance and Enterprise Allowance schemes on. And so people were able to sometimes sign on or, you know, if they had a thousand pound in their bank account, they could do that kind of one year of being self-employed, doing whatever they put down. So musicians seemed a good bet. Did you did you sort of go into those schemes at all, or did you? No, sort I, of... um, I, just because I worked for my dad and that, you know, uh, I generally was in a position to finance demos and things like that, you know, and and trips to London to take the demos around. Um, so no, I was never on a scheme or anything, you know. Yes. I know bands who like I've worked with over the years who have been on those schemes, but I, I suppose I was just in a lucky position to to have a job, you know. Yeah, absolutely. God, the eighties—it was all a bit desperate. But did you yeah. um, did uh, with those bands? I mean, did you get round to the the singles or the any albums at this stage? Uh, not with the dance party. Pardon me. Uh, Egypt for now had two tracks on the. Liverpool Street to Street Volume 2 compilation. Um, but then uh, we split up because uh, the, the usual musical differences. I played uh, Mick Head, Arthur Lee's Love, and it was like a light bulb going on over his head. And, and he wanted us to end up sounding like Love, and I didn't. And, and the last one of the last things, or two of the last things we did, in Egypt for now was we did a cover version of She Comes in Colours mm. by Love. And we did a cover version of I Had Too Much to Dream Last Night by the Electric Prunes. And that showed our musical differences, I think, the two extremes. So I I went further with like the balcony into like psychedelia and almost jazz at, at times. And Mick went into recreating love with the pale fountains, you know. Um, so it, it what happened was after the street to street LP came out, um, I was I was sending off tapes of the balcony, um, which we hadn't actually recorded the demo yet. It was a live recording of our first gig at the warehouse or the third gig at the warehouse, uh, and we'd overdubbed a couple of guitars and things, and we'd sent it to John Peel and his producer Rungo, um, and he said, "Well, we were going to ask you." Uh, if we could get Egypt for now uh, to do a session, but uh, I understand you've split up. Um, we love the new demo. We'd like to book the balcony, you know. So even before we had a record out, we did a John Peel session. Oh, fantastic. Did you, um, who was your producer on that? Was it the famous Dale Griffin from Mott the Hoople? Or no, did... it was, oh, I forget his name. He, was, he used to be in um, a band called the Three Bryans or something. Uh, oh. I, I can't his name. Robinson? There was another guy called Robinson or Wilson. Well, I know I it wasn't Dale. Yeah. It wasn't <laughs> Dale. 
No, the famous tale. He's apparently quite grumpy and no one liked it, but <laughs> he, did, he, he did a good job anyway. I'm sure if that was your day job, you got a bit irritated with 80s indie bands, didn't you? <laughs> the thing is, David, it's like, you know, if that's your job and you work in like BBC Made of Bale, it's just a conveyor belt, isn't it? Yeah. You know, you've got like these bands coming in every day who all think they're special. But to you, it's just, you just want to record what they're doing as best as you can and get it down and hope it represents what they're doing, you know? Yes. Yeah, and you don't, you don't want any prima donnas, especially when they're about 16 or 18, do you? Yeah, you know, they, they must have all been prima donnas. I'm sure we were. <laughs> <laughs> yes. God, well, I hope it has it has it ever been kind of reissued or or released, this um, your, your John Peel session? I'm actually just in the process of it, just doing a band camp release and that. I like I like band camp just for putting things out like old demos, just so that they are available for anyone who's interested in that, you know. But I don't put them on Spotify or anything like that. No. I mean, I put, I put me, me current band, Moon Goose, all that goes on all the streaming sites and everything, you know. But for the early balcony stuff uh, and the dance party stuff, that, uh, that just goes on Bandcamp. We do love Bandcamp. And also, you get to a certain age, archiving becomes really important. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, rather than just be, I've got an extensive archive, David. Honestly, it's got like, I found recently a cache of cassettes that contain like rehearsals, like early teardrop explodes and Echo and the Bunnymen rehearsals from like 1978, 79. And that, you know, and, and I'm sitting on all this stuff from 1978, 79, right through to like you know 2000 of of a lot of rare stuff that what's the point of me just sitting on it you know i may as well archive it online somewhere you know absolutely so, no, absolutely that's that's what i use bandcamp for no we love that we love archiving at a certain age so how i mean you said with balcony you had a track on letter to brezhnev which was um a great scoop because at the time it was such a popular film, wasn't it, for us indie kids who liked our yeah. arty cinema and thought Betty Blue was the most important film of the century. Yeah, yeah. much forgotten film, Betty Blue as well. Um, yeah, it was. Um, they were all just fans of the balcony, um, like Chris and Frank and Margie and uh, like Sandra Pig and that. They they all just loved the balcony and Chris had done. Uh, the video for a single called Too Late uh, by The Balcony. Um, and he just said, like, uh, we're doing this film. Can we use you in the film, you know? Um, so there's an argument and we're on TV with the video that he, he put on. Uh, so it, it just seemed, it was quite a bit of a scoop, but it just seemed quite natural to all of us that we would be involved in some way, you know? And then the next film they did was an ad adaptation of a Philip K. Dick book called A Scanner Darkly. And unfortunately, they made the film. It was like a community project thing, which I thought was brilliant. It was like after doing something that became an indie blockbuster like Lessons of Brezhnev, they did like a community thing for like young actors and everything and made this film called Flowers, um, which was based on this Philip K. Dick book. But when they asked for permission to do it, because they made it, the estate said, no, you can't use it. So they had to change the title and try and sneak it out, you know. But we we ended up um, doing all of the soundtrack to that. 
So it was like it was basically done by the Balcony's guitarist, but um, the Balcony had three tracks in it, and then I wrote the uh, the theme tune for it. Uh, unfortunately, I don't even have a copy of it in my collection. You know, Jesus crazy, that's amazing. And was the Everyman Theatre was that based in Liverpool as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that used to be the uh, the home for everyone to meet uh, outside of Eric's. Yes. Was that, I mean, you just answered it, didn't you? Was that an important venue and an important sort yeah, of hub? Yeah, the Everyman Bistro, the bar downstairs, and, and they used to have live bands on as well. And the dance party's first gig was supporting War Heat um, wow. at, um, I think it was the, the, the Bistro, but it was, we only found out about it um, with a poster. Uh, in pro records and it had us supporting them and no one had told us and when I spoke to Pete Wiley he said what are you you're going to shit out of it are you and that, it was like no no way so that was our debut gig you know under threat because if we didn't <laughs> do it it was like you know we'd be the laughing stocks yes that wouldn't so, be good would it at all we would offer a challenge excellent and and, and it's interesting because Pete I think is sort of got some dates. And also, Paul, is it Simpson from The Wild Swans? He's also yeah. writing his book at the moment, isn't he, which is going to come that's out. Happened. Yeah. So um, that's quite interesting. So were you, was was Liverpool quite a community of, um, the you know, the musical hub? You know, did everyone slightly intermix with each other at this stage? Yeah. in the? Yeah. Yes, they did. Yeah, uh, everyone knew everyone. Um, there was friendly rivalries. Of course, there was intense rivalries as well. But generally, it was. I I always think it was so supportive, um, you know. And I remember earlier on, like there was a sounds journalist called Dave McCulloch, who wrote everything together for an article and called it um, the New Mersey Beat, and and that didn't exist. And and the four bands he chose to illustrate the New Mersey Beat, you really couldn't find four more different bands. You know, there was the Teardrops. The Bunny Man, OMD, and Pink Military. And they didn't sound anything like each other, you know? So it, it, he was trying to make a scene out of something that was so fractured, uh, it couldn't possibly be called a scene. The only thing they had in common was they wanted to do something different. Yes. Like musically different, you know? Um so I think that's the only thing that brought them together. And everyone was really supportive of that. And and apart from the Liverpool sort of thing, we had the Manchester thing as well. And and you had like bands like Joy Division coming to Eric's really early on when he were called Warsaw. And they weren't very good. You know, they, they were just like a, a generic sort of punk band. And then I remember one time in Eric's uh, Joy Division were on again. And as I said earlier, we used to go down no matter who was on. And then Will came to the bar, which was in a different room to the live room, and he just went, you've got to come in and see this to all of us. And it was like, oh, no, it's just Joy Division. And he went, no, something's happened. They're amazing. And we went in. And it was like watching a different band. And he'd written things like She's Lost Control and Transmission and all of Unknown Pleasures and that. And it was breathtaking, you know. So everyone was mutually supportive, whether it was the Liverpool bands, the Manchester bands, because the fall 
were always welcome in Liverpool. They were always, you know, seen as one of our bands. Um, yes. So it was, and also, you know, it branched out to like things like Cabaret Voltaire from Sheffield. They played Eric's an awful lot. Um, and the Human League, the early Human League. So I, I just love that support network that was around to cushion everything. And for me, trying to learn and, and create a band and create an identity for that band, it was wonderful having the ability to take it wherever you wanted. And then people would go, yeah, that sounds good, rather than, oh, no, you can't possibly do that. You know, Oh, you won't get in the charts with that because no one ever thought of the charts. You know, even though later on all the bands are mentioned, were in the charts and changed yes. it. It was almost like the charts changed for them to accommodate them, you know. Uh, no one actually actively sought fame in that way. It just accidentally came to them. Yes, and I, I remember now talking, um, there was a documentary, I should have rehe- I should have <laughs> thought of this beforehand, but there was a kind of little documentary I remember in the 80s, and there was an old lady who I'm sure had some sort of place that people would go and rehearse in. Um, I might have to cut all this out if you can't remember it, but I'm sure that, that all these kind of, you know, groovy kind of musicians from Liverpool would go, oh, yeah, we'd go to old Doris's little place, and we'd that go there. Me. That was me mum. Oh, that was it? documentary called, um, uh, what was it, Something for the Weekend. And it was made by me and next door neighbor who's Roy Bolter from uh, The Farm. He's the drummer in The Farm, and he's also a film producer. But years ago, uh, he made a documentary on my mum, Gladys, and it had all, the, like, it had The Teardrops, The Bunny Man, Pete Wiley, um, Bill Drummond, everyone who used to rehearse here or used to have something to do with it, they interviewed them, you know. So that's what you saw. That's what I saw. Oh, God, because I was thinking, God, I mean, now, not the time to I'll start looking through. You can watch it again. It's brilliant. Yes, it was brilliant. I just remember being, and I I can't remember if Paul was in it, Simpson as well from The Wild Swans, but it was just it was just like this really, you know, amazing story, which was incredible. I know Paul, uh, because at that time, the, the latest band to rehearse in the basement uh, was Space. So they interviewed Space with me mom sitting in between them. And then they had two songs from Space in it. And the second song was my debut in Space as the bass player, because mm-hmm. I'd always been behind the scenes before. God so, mom. Yeah, so how did your mum so how did your mum start provide a, a kind of a studio come rehearsal room, by the way? I said earlier it was there. I, I met I got friendly with Julian Cope, who was living up the road. And he said, oh, you've got a basement, do you reckon um, we could rehearse there? And I asked my mum, and she said, no, absolutely not. Um, and then I kept asking her. And then she said, oh, well, let's just give it a try, see if it's if it works out, you know. Um, and it worked out on and off for many, many years. And I, I just think she was mad. I would have told me to get lost, you know, because... She had like a glasses cabinet upstairs from where they rehearsed, and it used to just rattle, like you know. And and how she put up with it, I've no idea. Yeah, but she, she and I think she loved the attention, and and she loved meeting certain members of the band. Like she wasn't that fond of Julian, 
but Ian McCulloch had the bunny man. She absolutely pulled. Uh, and he could get away with murder, you know. Like, everyone used to have to use the outside toilet, apart from Ian McCulloch, for some reason. And he could use the indoors toilet. And then one time she came and got me and said, I'm a bit worried he's been in there for ages. I hope he's not taking drugs or anything. And I said, no, 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 nothing like that goes on. And as, as I'm going up to get him, he walks down the stairs and he says to me, Mum, sorry about that, Gladys. I've just washed my hair. Is that all right? And she went, you cheeky bastard. But only he could get away with that for some reason, you know. Excellent. God, that's amazing. She must have got through a lot of cups of tea and biscuits, mustn't she? Sort of. <laughs> toast it was. If you remember, she used to make toast for everyone. That's it. I knew it was something she did. That was amazing. So when, okay, so when first pictures of you came out and the Lotus Eaters, did that kind of change the scene in Liverpool? Because suddenly you, you know, they were sort of an indie band. They were slightly in the Wild Swans, well, part of them. And then they have this massive hit. Did that, did that sort of a bit like Blondie in the punk scene in New York, did that kind of create a bit of an excitement for Liverpool at that stage? When you look at it, if you, like, they sort of came at the tail end of something because you already had the teardrops who'd had hits and the bunny men who, even though they, they weren't like charters and that, they were huge, huge cult band and that. And, and they always got in the album charts and everything. OMD had been in the charts. Everyone, like well before the Lotus Eaters, you know. Um, and the Lotus Eaters, like I've worked with um, both, both Jerry and Peter, Jerry used to be in uh, the dance party, Jerry Kelly or Jem Kelly. And Peter Coyle I've worked with on uh, some stuff about 10 years ago. Uh, we did about, uh, well, an LP's worth of material together. Um, but that's when Liverpool were, were, and Manchester were sort of taking off in the charts, you know, and, and getting proper careers out of it. So yes. it's it, it sort of... You know, it changed the dynamic in a way that young bands in Liverpool were wanting to actually start being in the charts, you know. And even with the balcony, the, the later stages of the balcony, uh, I had to bend slightly my own rules about what we did and make it a bit more commercial just from pressure from other members of the band and that, you know, who, who were trying to think, well, who were perceiving it as we were going to be Locked over or overlooked, as it were, you know, and that's something I regret because I never really saw us as chart fodder, you know, it was always a little bit stranger than that. But I think everyone tried to do it, you know, write the perfect three minute song. And how did you go? And and Jim, Jim Kelly, because he was in both, you know, the, the Wild Swans and Lotus Eaters. I mean, he's he's got an amazing guitar sound. How did you kind of um find him? Was he was he in you know, an easy character to to work with well when um me and mick had uh always he was in a band jam was in a band called psychomesh um and we always loved psychomesh and his guitar really stood out in psychomesh um and then when our guitarist in the dance party bailed out on us before a, a big gig we had coming on uh, and we asked jam now, Jem had already done a demo with Paul Simpson because Paul also had his eyes set on his guitar style and everything. But that hadn't worked out, so he joined the dance party. That didn't work out. He went back and 
started working with Paul. Um, and that's where the Wild Swans came from, you know. Um, in the dance party, I've got a tape somewhere that I'm still trying to track down. Um, his guitar playing was slightly different to what he's known for, all the finger picking and everything. It was really funky. Um, a bit like, you know, the pop group. You know, yes. the band yeah. So chunky, like, you know, funky chords. He was just fucking brilliant. He really was out on his own, you know. And then he later refined that to the finger-picking style and everything. So he's one of one of the best guitar players I've known, you know. Yes, I know. He's he's extraordinary. Yeah, no, it's incredible. So look, because for me, you know, I was such an indie kid and, you know, it was John Peel. I'd always record his show and then listen to that tape because it was always kind of hard to digest listening to new music and there was the NME there was so much going on, but then between, okay, this is my usual, 83 to 87, the Smiths were there, and it sort of creates this kind of, wow, the Smiths, indie pop. And then after they split up, you know, there was a lot of indie bands going down at that stage, and then Ecstasy comes along, and there's another wave and another kind of group of people. How did you cope with that 80s period as bands started to, you know, get exhausted or sort of think, oh, I can't keep this going? We just kind of, you know, because a lot of people... Who did I speak to the other day? They got, oh, that Petrol Emotion. He was saying that, you know, by the sixth album they put out, you know, they were just getting a little bit of press. They were, The venues were getting smaller and even more sparse. Mm-hmm. And it was like, oh, we just had it. Forget it. You know, we. Mm-hmm. so what did, how did you cope with that kind of 80s transition? Um, I think I agree with that. It's what, what you'd term, I think, fatigue. It was like, um, it, it was starting to get a bit like a battle. Um, and you know, uh, I I was doing demo after after demo. Uh, we even changed the name from the balcony uh, to Big uh, for for one release on a compilation LP. And then I just called it a day. I just split the band up and thought I'm I'm going to have a break for a while. Um, so I was never really into the. Uh, the acid house or or dance revival thing, you know, the ecstasy culture, uh, that sort of bypassed me. Um, and I was just writing all the time, and I, I really got into writing instrumental music, um, basically for myself, just to try and find out what I wanted to do next, you know. Um, but I think that the the term fatigue. Would be it, it's also I agree with that petrol emotion. It's like you know you say they released their sixth LP to minimal reviews. You'd start thinking, what am I doing this for? Who yes. am I doing it for? You know. Well, it's interesting because uh, I remember you know the guy from the Mighty Lemon Drops, also the Primitives, you know that petrol emotion, you know, and the people like the June Brides and uh, the Wolfhounds. It was like they were at times kind of like wow, you know, doing really well, doing Glastonbury front page of the NME you know, good albums. And then it was that kind of, all right, anybody wants to listen to our next album? It's a bit like, and the fans are sort of like, well, actually, I'm a bit busy now. I can't be bothered. And the next wave of fans come along. They want to discover that band with the first single, don't they? You you know, discovering the new band is something that you yeah. really love. So in a way, even if a band might have been around only three years, you're thinking, yeah, who cares? They've done their best stuff. It all sounds the same now. So it's, a, it's yeah, really... I, I actually think that, you know, I, I'm a great believer that, Things should have an end. Um, and I, I really hate things that, like, one of my bugbears in life is Coronation Street. Um, because my mum started watching Coronation Street when it first started. 
and then it outlived here. Like, you know, uh, and I know that Coronation Street will outlive me. And I was talking to one of my sons who was 14 the other day, and he was saying, in all probability, it might outlive him. <laughs> and I think that's wrong. You know, I, I just think, because, you know, what? so if it outlives Ben, does that mean there might be flying cars in Coronation Street or whatever? When is it time to put an end to something? You know, like, um, I always think that things resonate more if there is an end to it. And then you can look back on the complete thing. But if it's just self-perpetuating and just, you know, going around in circles, you get lost, you get bored. Yes. And I think the same with bands as well. I think that if if you've said everything by the third or fourth LP, then fuck off. You know, <laughs> why, drag, no, but why drag it on? You know, it's like the alternative is you stick at it. Like, I've been reading lately favourable things about you 2 which everyone's, they've almost become a laughing stock over the last few years, you know, when they gave away that LP on iTunes <laughs> and people were asking how they could return it, you know, even though it was free. But now they're all going on about, like, in, in the next sort of music magazine for next year, 2023, it'll be like, you too, the last of the great survivors. This, that, you know, and is that the right way to do it? Should you know the, the the Rolling Stones? Should they really still be around anymore? And when people say, "Oh, but the new LP is quite good," quite good's not really good enough, is it? You know, and and to say, "Oh, it's quite good compared to the last one," yeah, but mm. with dog shit. But you know what I mean? It's 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 great if like. If you've made four LPs that are wonderful, leave it at that. Put a full stop to it. Television, they made two amazing LPs and came back and did a third one. No one was interested because the two LPs were enough. You know, the Velvet Underground, who I think is the greatest band that ever was, only ever made four LPs. And that is enough because in those four LPs, you've got a history of music. And that is it was well enough. If they'd have carried on, which they did without Lou, I made one more called Squeeze that no one listens to, whether unfairly or not, but it's a Doug ULP, you know. But the Velvet Underground has, you know, the core unit. There's only four LPs. That's enough. And yes. you can look at that legacy. If they'd have just carried on and carried on, like Lou Reed's solo career, it reaches points where you just, it's not only you can't be asked giving it your attention, it's infuriating that he has no uh, quality control over what he's doing. And it's so patchy, it's ridiculous, you know. So you can ignore his solo stuff. There are some brilliant Lou Reed LPs, but you could quite happily ignore all of them because the groundbreaking stuff is in those first four LPs. For me, the best Bunnyman LPs are the first four LPs. You know, the teardrops only ever did two LPs. That said it all. That said all Julian had to say with the teardrop explodes. Leave it now, you know. So bands who just keep going and keep going. No, don't. don't do There's it, a don't. shelf life 
But did you feel, you know, when you watched, if you did, the Beatles kind of Let It Be kind of remake, the eight-hour special that came out last year, did you sort of sit down and watch that? No, I didn't watch it, no. I heard it was fascinating. It was so fascinating. It was, well, what's some, I won't bore, bore go into too much details at the moment. It was just amazing that, there were like microphones in, you know, like flower, the flower display, you know, with John and Paul having a chat. And they obviously didn't know they were being recorded as they were talking about George. And and you just thought, you know, as as we were watching this, you know, it was so incredible, you know, like Paul must have thought, God, I can't remember that conversation. Obviously, they they sanitized bits of it because George, they don't, you know, the bits with about George kind of have been left out. But um, yeah, it's a fascinating eight hour. On so many levels, isn't it? When you think of it, that's like um, you know, that's that's a very private thing, a conversation, and you've got somewhat like surveillance. Surveillance. Yeah, I know. I guess they would. They they must have agreed to having it filmed, but there must have been moments where they thought, God, I didn't realize you had a microphone in the in the flowers. Yeah. <laughs> but it's with the balcony. Um, I used to rail against cover versions because we had a song called the cover version uh, and it was about the influx of cover versions in the charts and it was the easy way to get a record deal and that, like Simply Red did it with uh, Money Too Tight to Mention and that. And I remember going to Electra and he really liked the balcony and that and he said, well, we're just thinking of a cover version and like we've got this new band, Simply Red, and their first release is Money Too Tight to Mention and I said, that's a cover, isn't it? And uh, and he was like, yeah, yeah. And I knew Mel Kochnull and that, you know. But anyway, we had a song having a dig about cover versions. But in our lifetime, we only ever attempted one cover version. Um, and it was, do you know the song, It's Only a Northern Song? Yes, on, Dream Academy. No, um, on the Yellow Submarine album. Oh, okay. <laughs> hey, Bulldog and things. And it's a George Harrison song. And it's about John and Paul and how much he, he dislikes them. And it's lyrics like, if you think the harmony's a little dark and out of key, you're correct, there's nobody there. And that, and it, it's just brilliant. It's so scathing. So I take comfort in thinking that no matter what they were saying about George Harrison in that sort of surveillance film, can't possibly be quite as nasty as what he says about them in that song, you know? <laughs> Oh, it's it's a fascinating. It is fascinating. You think eight hours. I'm never going to watch all this, and then you sort of keep going back. Think, oh, I've got half an hour. Just quickly watch another bit, <laughs> you know. And then you know, it's a bit like it is one of those ones though, because you wonder how it's going to end, you know. And you think, oh, it's going to be depressing, but actually, you kind of keep thinking they 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 start badly as a band, you know, dynamically, but then they seem to get better, you know, and they're happier and happier and happier, and then it finishes. It's like, my God, you should have just kept it together. And it's a bit like Scooby Doo because oh, no, you're. No, no, no. No, what what I was saying before, it's great that it finished. It, yes. You know, because you can look back at, because they didn't make that many LPs, did they? But you can look back at them and see the progression and see the way it felt a bit as well with, like, the Let It Be LP and everything. But that's a self-contained story, you know? If they'd have just carried it on for the sake of it, it would have just been embarrassing and you would have had awful Beatles LPs. And do you know what I mean? It would have just been, you would have had like triple LPs like Octopus's Garden and stuff like that. Ooh, blah, dee, ooh, blah, da, you know. 
Yes, I know. I mean, they would have they would have struggled during the punk years. Um, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> so then we had we had this Seattle grunge scene, and then Brit pop starts. So what's your nineties period like at this stage? Um, again, I was uh, I was sort of doing my own things uh, with a friend called Mick Dolan, uh, with a view to getting a band together, like a solo project. Um, and then I started working with the Balkanese old drummer, a fellow called Mark Cowley, who'd started up a label. And he'd seen this band that he really liked um, called The Australians. And when he actually said that he'd put a record out by them, <laughs> they split up. Um, but they had a couple of gigs that they were contracted to do. So they got a new guitar player and changed their name and it became Space. Right. So I'd never really heard of them before. And I'm working basically on this record, um, doing the office work and sending it round and doing promo for it and plugging and PR and everything. And, and I thought they were just like quite a competent sort of little beat combo. They sounded a bit like... Um, the small faces or something to me, you know. Um, and Tommy could, he could really write a good song and that. And he was influenced by uh, Steve Marriott and, and uh, Ray Davis and that, you know, which I love the kinks as well. I think they're brilliant. Um, but I wasn't a huge fan. Um, and then from there, um, we went to London and this was the height of Britpop, you know. And we played the marquee, or they played the marquee. And it was badly attended, and they didn't like it. Coming back in the van, Tommy was just going, we're shit. I'm never, ever doing that again. That was just embarrassing. And, and the driver <coughs> put uh, Cypress Hill on, uh, the stereo in the van, and it blew everyone's minds. They hadn't heard Cypress Hill. I hadn't heard Cypress Hill before. And Tommy was going, we should be doing stuff like this. You know, this is what's happening now. And he just thought, what we're doing is so retro. And he thought the whole of the Britpop thing was really retro. Um, so the first thing he did was contact an old friend who was a keyboard player um, called Franny Griffiths. Um, and they, they rewrote the set. They moved into our basement, rewrote the set. Um, Mark had been away on holiday, came back. His band, who he absolutely loved, had completely mutated uh, because of the influence of Franny and that. And yeah. they were playing things like Mr. Psycho. Um, and when, they, when they'd when they left, Mark, having a cup of tea, said, uh, what do you think of it, Dave? And I said, I think they're brilliant now. I said, I can really see it. It's fantastic. It's not like anything else around. And he went... I don't like it. He said, I can't see it working. And just as he's saying that, my mum came walking down the stairs singing, Mr. Psycho, he'll blow you away. And I went, Ma, if she can get it, fucking anyone can get it, you know? Because the thing is, they were just addictive tunes. Uh, and the rest is history, you know? We found <clears throat> there was, we put out the first single, um, with the cover done by one of the farm called Carl Hunter. And one of the people it sent it to was an old friend, Dave Balf, the keyboard oh, player. Yes. 
the teardrops and he co-owner of zoo records and of course co-owner of food and of course he found blair and everything and he phoned me up and he said um, who did the sleeve and i said carl has the farm he said i love the sleeve hate the record he said but have you released that awful record sometime by stan and i and i don't know if you remember that but it was like right said fred or something you know <clears throat> and i said no <clears throat> he said, well, get on to them because they've released it on Hug Records. Do you own the name? And I said, yeah. So it was through that Mark rung up Hug Records. They shit themselves because they hadn't checked if the name was available to use. And we got into talks with the head of um, what became a Gut Records, uh, a fellow called Guy Holmes, and he wanted to sign space without changing anything, because everyone else who'd heard them had said, it's a bit quirky, it's a bit odd. If you can iron all that out, we might be interested. Whereas they just said, this is fantastic, let's go with it. So they released, uh, the first single was Money, which was recorded. Well, the original idea was put them in Par Street Studios in Liverpool, which was a top flight studio owned by Genesis and that. And I'd suggested uh, Nick Kohler and Tony Thorpe from the KLF to produce the single, which was going to be a song called Kill Me. Um, but then we recorded a B-side of what we thought the B-side on a mini-disc quarter studio in, in my room, my studio, um, which we're in at the moment. Um, and whereas Kill Me costs, say, five grand, six grand to record, um, money cost a five-pound electricity card for me mum and a blank mini-disc. And that became the A-side. So I just thought that was, that was brilliant. Uh, they saw something in this home recording that a top-flight studio didn't have, you know. And as I said before, the rest is history because Neighbourhood became a massive hit. Female of the species blew everyone away. Um, and, and there was no stopping us for a while. And I ended up, instead of working on the demos and uh, being keyboard tech, which is a fancy term for roadie, um, I ended up playing bass with them, you know, in, 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 in their prime. Yes, amazing. That was that was quite something. So you had that journey with a band who went just through that kind of those gears, didn't you? The the stages yeah, yeah. of. And the thing is, I never had to do uh, the toilet gigs, as they call the small gigs, to build up your reputation. I was there because I was the keyboard tech and that. But my first performance with them as a bass player <coughs> was at um, the Hillsborough Benefit gig at Anfield. Right. And then the next day we flew off to America. You know, so I, I got all the good side of it. You got the you got the glory, the the kind of I yes. Got all, the, I got all the limos and the first class and that, you know. So you did you work on the sec were you playing on the, the Tin Planet album? Was were you part of the band at that stage? Yeah, on Spiders, I just did backing vocals and I'd done all the demos for Spiders, like I'd recorded them at home. Uh, but on the LP, I just do backing vocals. And then by Tim Planet, uh, I'm doing all the bass, all the backing vocals, uh, pre-production, um, some post-production, uh, and co-writing as well. 
And then by like the third LP, I had one of my own songs on it. Um, and the fourth LP is basically I played, I not only produced most of it, I played most of the keyboards on it, co-wrote it, uh, did all the bass and everything. Yes. And also the sleeve for it, I ended up doing the sleeve with Tommy. Is that the Attack of the Mutant 50 foot? No, it's the one before that. It's um, Suburban Rock and Roll. Suburban Rock and Roll. When you went to record that album, by then, had the band, did you sort of feel like the band was sort of going through a bit of an existential crisis? No, what happened, David, was um, for the third LP, Love You More Than Football, we wanted a different producer than the first two LPs, even though we co-produced the second one ourselves. Uh, we'd used a fellow called Jeremy Wheatley, uh, who engineered the he engineered Spiders, co-produced Tim Flannis, took it for granted he was doing the third LP, Love You More Than Football, but we wanted a change. So it was left to me to tell him in a hotel room. And and we wanted him. Um, I wanted Flood, who'd done um, Depeche Mode, but he was going through a, a divorce. So our next, our next um, setting on the list was Edwin Collins, because we all loved um, Girl Like You, you know, never yeah. had a girl like you before. Uh, so Edwin jumped at the chance. And so we recorded the whole LB with Edwin, and I thought it was just fantastic. And Guy at the record label, he, he, was, he loved it a bit. And he said, I'm taking it away on holiday with me. And then came back from holiday and hated it. He said, I want it, I want to change, I want it remixing, I want a few new songs. And he, he vacillated over it so much. And uh, we found out basically that what was really the problem wasn't Ed- Edwin's production or anything. Um he'd he'd spent a lot of money. We were owed a lot of money over the sales of the previous LPs, but he'd invested that. In the reload project with Tom Jones, yeah, um, you know, came about because of the song "The Ballad of Tom Jones," uh, which we did with Caris Matthews. Um, so he couldn't give us the money that he owed us. So he thought, "Oh, if I just keep them in the studio and keep them working, and then they'll whittle away at this debt that we owe them," you know. Um, so it came to a point where we had to down tools and just say, "Right." Until this is sorted, we're not doing anything. So we couldn't work for almost two years. And by the time we'd left that label and that had all been settled and we'd found a new label, which was um, a subsidiary of Chrysalis, people had forgotten about us. So it was unfortunate. It was just, you know, our time had been um, and we couldn't really capitalise on it. My God, that's awful, isn't it? That is just a terrible, you know. It's awful for the fact that um, we, we all thought that Suburban Rock and Roll was the strongest LP. And Love You More Than Football has come out since in a, in a box set and it's available on Spotify. But to me still, it's the new version. It's not Edwin's version. And it just doesn't hang together as an album, I don't think. you know, it's Because it, it, I think an LP is, is a journey, you know, you start with something and then you go through this journey with the band and then it ends on a, a suitable ending, you know, which I always think the last track points the way to the next album. Yes. But Love You More Than Football, the way it was released, it's just, 
all over the place. There is no consistency with it at all. Some are Edwin's bits, some are new song. It, it's horrible, you know. But it's a bit of rock and roll, I think, is uh, so precise. There's no Jamie songs on it because he left the band. So it's all Tommy. And we used to have a track by Franny, uh, which was an electronic dance thing. There's none of that on it. It's just all Tommy. And I think because of that, it's so focused and, and brilliant. And we couldn't capitalise on it because our time had gone. You know? So, um, yes, your default. Can you still hear me? It says your, it says a default. Yeah, yeah you went. You've I gone again. Yeah. So, so, so did the band sit down in 2005 and, to quote Jim Morrison, call it the end? Um, we, we sort of, we had a few plans for other things and then it became a bit harder. And so we just thought we'd, we'd take a rest. Um, not necessarily let's split up. It was just, we'll take a rest. And then unfortunately we all ended up doing different things, you know, um, like I bumped into an old friend of mine, um, Mick Head, who we'd started in bands together and, uh, you know, he had the Pale Fountains and Shaq and I bumped into him and he asked me if I'd produce the new Shaq LP, which we talked about a few times before, but it had never come about. But this time he definitely wanted me to do it. Uh, and that was for Noel Gallagher's label, Sour Mash. Uh, well, actually, originally it wasn't, but eventually it came out on his label. Um, so I was involved with that and then co-managing Shaq for a number of years and going on the last Oasis tour. And we did uh, the last Who, oh, the Who tour at that time because Pete Townsend said uh, it was the best LP there in years and he'd love to work with us. So Mark was on the phone straight away. You're going on tour to give us the support. And he went, okay. So we did that, you know. So then Tommy formed a band called The Drellers, uh, named after a nickname they had for Andy Warhol, which was uh, Cinderella meets Dracula, or Dracula meets Cinderella, Drella. So uh, he he was busy with that for a number of years, um, which then mutated into the current lineup of space uh, because... He was a bit reticent at first of doing space songs and then he started putting a couple in the set and then it ended up, let's just call it space, you know. But by that time as well, I'd started a new project called Moon Goose, um, which I've been doing now for, uh, well, we just had an anniversary box set release, but I started it in uh, 1999, 2000. So it's been going quite a number of years, you know, on yeah. and off, filled with space at the time when I first started it, but it wasn't serious. But after that, and and for me, doing production all the time, because I produced a band called Seven Seals, another band uh, called, from Preston called Ivan Campo, and I, I moved into production. Um, but I also wanted an avenue to let my own stuff out, and that became Moon Goose. Fantastic. So we released um, our fifth album, and uh, it's my favourite. So and it's got the best press so far as well. Excellent. This is all very exciting. So how do you manage to sort of navigate it? Because this is quite. Um, are you still living in the same house that you grew up in? Is this the the famous house where you're? 
moved here when I was two. And it's it was the family home, and it's now my family's home, you know. And <laughs> it's just really and are you just kind of still kind of working on lots of different sort of projects and channels as well as your own band? Yeah, um, I've got Moon Goose, which is me, my priority. Um, and I'm my friend who I've worked with for years, uh, Mick Dolan. Uh, he's got a band called Windmill. Uh, I've produced two LPs by them. Um, and I'm also the bass player and I do backing vocals. And I've written a couple of songs on the last LP. And in the new year, we're doing a third LP with Windmill. Fantastic. So, uh, I've, I've sort of condensed it a bit, David, because I got really fed up after the shack thing of you get people getting in touch with you and, you know, they want, to, they want you to produce their new LP. And my usual thing is, like, you really need to think, do you really need a producer? Because in this day and age, I don't think a lot of people do, if you know what I mean. I think that... If you know what you want to sound like um, with modern technology and that, you can achieve it on your own. Like, you know, for instance, if the balcony had a, the same equipment that I have in my studio, um, our turnaround would have been amazing. And, you know, you know what I mean? It's, it's like uh, the ability to record now in your home no longer sounds like a shite, muddy recording. You can get really, really good. So anyway, I'd say to them, have a look at that. No, no, we want a producer. And and so you say, right, well, I could do it for a favour rate, you know, like your rock bottom sort of rate. And oh, we thought you'd do it for nothing. It's just, and the amount of times that would happen, I'd just end up saying no. You know, as soon as they say we're interested in you producing, I'd just go, no, I'm too busy at the moment, you know. Yes. Um, and I don't know what people expect, you know, because if you're saying you'll do it as a favour rate, it really is like the rock bottom price that you can do it for. Because don't forget, like, you know, you've got running costs of your studio and that. You've also got a family. You've got bills to pay. Why should you do it for nothing? You know, it's it's ridiculous. And, yes. and it just seemed to be the general thing that turned me off. So I only really produce things now that, if I especially want to, you know, like the windmill stuff, because uh, I really like their stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and are you kind of amazed? Because from your kind of community of people that you've worked with over the years, everyone is still with us nearly. I know there's a, be, a few deaths, which is always sad, but kind of generally, you know, that you've got Mick still, you know, album of the year, I think, in Uncut, you've got you know, Julian still doing things, Echo has still kind of got tools lined up for next year. I mean, everybody is still really creative. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, Jane's still active. Uh, Brody's still active, like the Lightning Seed, you just released a new album. And um, yeah, and I'm really pleased about it. You know, I think that, I think we're all still on the same page in as, in as much as uh, that inspiration that Roger gave us. Because um, originally, Roger Eagle's advice to Jane and everyone was like, um, forget the Beatles. And everyone took that as like, he hated the Beatles. But it wasn't. It was just, they did their own thing. Do your own thing. Yes. I like the fact that we're all still doing our own thing. And we still are supportive. 
because a few years back, uh, <coughs> <coughs> pardon me, <coughs> a Never few mind. years back, <coughs> Jane got asked to play in Brazil as Pink Industry. And she hadn't done anything musically for years, you know. So she was a bit apprehensive about doing it. She didn't really know how she wanted to do it or whatever. So she asked me to help out. So I just basically got a few tapes that they had and arranged them in a way. And then she got Ambrose in, who was the original bass player in them. And then his son was playing keyboards. But unfortunately, he just lost his dad. Um, so he, he wasn't focused enough to, even though he knows the technical side of things, he wasn't focused yeah. enough to do it. So I got it all ready for Raw to do. And then off they went to um, Brazil and performed. And it was, it was apparently a fantastic gig, you know. But I love that fact that she's unsure of how to do, I'll get lucky after all these years, you know. Yes. And I think do that in a way, it's like, um, at the moment, I've been talking to Will because he's writing his memoirs. Um, so he's, he had volume one uh, come out earlier this year, but he phoned me up before it was published just to corroborate a few things and find out a few things. And then uh, I've been talking to him at length for the next volume. And um, Paul Simpson and I are always, like, you know, talking. We're all still together as yes. a youth. Know, and I like that. Um, because it is like a family. It, it really is like a family that that we all grew up through this thing together, even though we were different, even though we wanted to do different things. Um, we admired each other, if you know what I mean. It was like... Uh, no, it's you know, a lovely... It is a lovely story, and I'm glad that so much is getting archived now as well. I mean, it's great that everyone's still doing new projects. Obviously, you can't just live on your past, but it is also quite kind of amazing, you know, like you were saying, all the people who've got new projects and new albums and, and um, yes, new creative endeavours. But it is also nice that people have been putting out... I know there's a band called Candy Opera, wasn't there? They sort of went back and got their kind of archives sorted out as well. Yeah, but that's great because... Ken, out of Candy Opera, Ken Moss, the guitar player, he was our guitarist in Egypt for now. And he was, like, it was through Candy Opera getting back in touch with him that I was able to get back in touch with Ken. And I sent him the Egypt for now demos that he hadn't heard since we did them. Um, so we're back in touch as well now, you know, and, and it's just great. The, and, and I'm really pleased for them, Candy Opera, because I know after Egypt for now, Ken was in the Pale Fountains for a bit, and then he just disappeared off the face of the earth, you know? I I, I knew no one who even had, like, an address, never mind a phone number. Yes. So it's great that we're all sort of coming back together, as it were. No, it's a, it's fantastic. I mean, if you could have whispered something to your, like, 16-year-old self starting out, is there anything that you might have just said, yeah, just that would have been really good, with all your experience and wisdom that we develop as we get older, hopefully? <laughs> no, no, because the mistakes you make are the mistakes you make, and, and you can't change them. So there's no point regretting them. Even mm. no matter how bad they are, you can't change them. So 
why why be filled with remorse over them you know it's it's like you just always got to move forward i think it just yes this is true yes i know this is all good but oh, look... yeah, I mean, you can always apologize for mistakes you've made some people never apologize they just dig their heels in and be adamant that they've done nothing wrong you know so i've always been humble enough to just go look i fucked up you know um, <laughs> That's it, you know. My advice would be just go for it, just go with it, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And did you ever meet Courtney Love when she came to Liverpool? Yeah, I couldn't stand her. Uh, she had a friend called Robin, and um, well, we didn't like each other, and we couldn't be in the same room together. She'd she'd walk in the room and notice me and walk out, or I'd do the same. I'd walk in and just go, oh, no. and we just. <laughs> couldn't stand each other's company at all, you know. Yeah. Uh, from between me and you, and it better not go on. Oh I'll, yeah, I'll just, I'll just wait a minute. I'll just hit pause. Christ, I don't want to record it. I just thought that she was. Too- oh wait a minute, I'll just hit pause again. I know. <laughs> Excellent. That's good. Um, yeah. Well, anyway. Well, thank you, David. Thank you ever so much for that. And um, yeah, I mean, if you also if you have that link, is it on YouTube? The the one with your mum, or was that? Have you got another? Um, yeah, if you look up, uh, well, I'll send you it. I'll send you a link to it. But it's uh, something for the weekend, Gladys Palmer. Excellent for the weekend. For the, such a classic. Anyway, look, this is amazing. Well, look, David, thank you ever so much for giving me the time for this. It's been amazing and um, such an insight into everything. God, there's so many things you mentioned that I thought, oh, yes, that's interesting. Um, yeah, but that's been great. And if you want, I can always send you the the link of the interview and then you can um, use it elsewhere if you want because it's always interesting. Yeah, and, and people, yeah, it's it's been good. It's been amazing. What a story. And, uh, if I send you, a, if, if I send you a link to the Bandcamp page as well, Yes, new band camp pages because there'll be the Moongoose one, obviously, but there's a balcony one as well, and that you know, so it'd be nice oh. to get a few hits on there. Yeah, definitely. I'd love to sort of, uh, yeah, the one as well. I forgot to mention about but released uh, after space or in between space LPs have released um, a solo LP, my only solo LP to date, uh, but that got re released uh, last year. Um, and that's just a sing-songy, like, you know, nice pop LP. Yeah, do yeah. If you yeah, if you've got any links, that would be good. But I also have a look as well. Hopefully, I'll be able to find. But anyway, look, I'll, I better let you go. And um, but thank you ever so much. I'm I'm pleased that I've sort of the house that you know had so much action and still does. So um, it's amazing. Anyway, look, it's been a pleasure. Okay. Thank you ever so much. Yeah, lovely talking to you. See you later. Bye bye. And that, dear listener, is how you finish a conversation. A massive thank you to Yorkie, David Palmer. Forgive me the time for that. Hopefully I'll find those links and put them in the uh, page or on the page. This has been uh, the C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. I'm David, and all these have been archived on Spotify, iTunes, and Podbean. Aren't you lucky? Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.